Listen, while the, while the choir is getting uh, organized, why don't you turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 16. We're going to be in John 16 together, and uh, welcome you turning there ahead of time. We've been in this series, Before I Go, is what we've been calling it, John chapters 14 to uh, probably 21 through the end of the book, and Jesus is sharing his last thoughts with his uh, closest followers before he dies for the sin of the world. And so he's sharing with them all the things that he wants to be sure that they know, or he's underlining those things that are important. And Jesus and his disciples had all gathered in the city of Jerusalem with thousands of other pilgrims, and they had had the Passover feast together. When they got there, there wasn't anybody to wash their feet, which was customary in their day. And so Jesus uh, washed all of their feet just to underline serving others. And then also back at the meal, he declared to his little band that uh, one of them was going to betray him. And then he gave some food to Judas, and he said, what you do, do quickly. And uh, Judas went out, and it was night. And Jesus also then later in that meal predicted that Peter would deny him before the rooster crowed in the morning. And he also commanded the disciples then, love one another. He waxed eloquent on that, to love one another. So they finished the meal, and then the whole group walked with Jesus uh, from uh, where they had shared the meal together in the city of Jerusalem to the Garden of Gethsemane, which is just outside the wall down in the valley, Kidron Valley, between Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives. And there they could sit and talk and pray. And it was one of Jesus' favorite places, and he went there often. And Jesus had been explaining how the world had hated him, and it was going to hate his followers too, that it would cost them something to be a follower of Jesus. And then in John 16, uh, Jesus summarizes those thoughts. He says, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogue which John recorded in chapter 9 of John, a story of a man who has been born blind. Jesus had healed him, and then he was uh, questioned multiple times by the Jewish leaders because it uh, to, to brought all the popularity and focus onto Jesus instead of uh, and away from them. And so they even questioned the blind man's parents who said, well, we know he was born blind, and we know he's our son. But how he can see, we don't know. He's old enough. Ask him yourself because they were afraid that if they declared Jesus was the Christ, that they would be uh, excommunicated and put out of the synagogue. And so Jesus says in this talk, they will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. Now, Jesus said this over 2,000 years ago, and it's incredible that here in 2016, there are still barbarians in this world who think that way. That by killing Christians, they're somehow serving God. And Jesus predicted this to warn us in advance. He said they will do these things because, because they do not know God the Father nor me. They don't know God, he says. They use God's name, but they don't know God. But I have said these things to you that when the hour comes, you may remember that I told you. I told them to you. Jesus is trying to get his disciples ready for a difficult task ahead, to do his work in the world without him personally being with them. Now, that's a big change for them. They had spent three years walking with Jesus, seeing him every day. He would be the teaching. He would be the one saying, let's do this or let's do that. And so it would be a big change for them, but it's normal for us. We've never had the benefit and the blessing of getting to see Jesus bodily and just to be around him and to walk with him face to, and be around him, see him face to face. And so he is sharpening his warning to them that they will be hated and persecuted and ostracized and even put to death all because of their love for Jesus. 
See, if you think Jesus was just a nice person or a great teacher, had some interesting thoughts, then you don't expose yourself to all of that uh, ridicule and hatred and persecution. If, however, you believe that Jesus is who he said he is, that he's God, came in human flesh, that you will see him again on judgment day, that he's the one who's going to decide if you're going to spend eternity in hell or in heaven, then you choose to ask him to be your Savior. And you love him, and you follow him, and you endure all those hardships because of your love for Jesus. I'm sure that John reported these words in his gospel, which was written, they think, about 90 A.D. So it's one of the last books that was written that was put into the New Testament because the early church, the followers of Jesus, was suffering such great persecution and needed to be reminded that Jesus had warned them in advance. By the end of the first century, there is a great divide between the church and the synagogue, between those who believed in Jesus and those who did not. And those who did believe in Jesus were completely disowned by the Jewish community. The believers were seriously persecuted. In fact, John himself had moved out of the city of Jerusalem, out of Israel, took Mother Mary with him, and moved all the way up to Ephesus, which is in Turkey to get away from the persecution. But even there he was arrested and he was put on the island of Patmos in exile for his faith. And it was there that Jesus visited him and gave him the revelation, which became the book, the revelation at the end of the, uh, that's placed at the end of the Bible. It's basically a story of Jesus overcoming any obstacle, any evil that would come his way and reigning as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And Jesus gave this to John, who wrote it down for the church because there was a pressing need for courage in the church. And there is in our day as well. So Jesus' words, though, gave the disciples some anxiety. It spurs them on to thinking, to be aware, to listen up to the words of Jesus. And Jesus knew that he was causing them to be so concerned. So he went on to tell them about a parting gift that he was going to give to each one of them. It was the Holy Spirit of God. It was going to come and live inside of each of them. Now, I read a story about a wife that had just had a baby, brought the baby home from the hospital. And uh, so they have uh, their first little baby, she and her husband. And in the middle of the night, the baby's not crying, but she woke up and she felt her husband wasn't in the bed. And so she went looking for him, found him looking over the crib. The baby's asleep in the crib and he's watching the baby with a mixture of disbelief and delight and amazement and skepticism and enchantment on his face. And she's touched by this unusual display by her man and the deep emotions it aroused in her. And so she starts tearing up and with eyes glistening, she slips her arm around him and she whispers, a penny for your thoughts. And he says, oh, it's just amazing. It's just amazing. I don't see how anybody could make a crib like that for only $66.95. <laughs> now, here lay one of the greatest miracles of God's creation. And this, all this father sees is the crib and the expense. He didn't see what lay within. And there are many who only see the outside framework and they miss the miracle that Jesus has given to his people, the church. The gift within, the Holy Spirit. It's a gift. We celebrate the reason for the gift, not the container. Jesus is the gift we celebrate and he's given to us and he, his spirit is given that lives inside of each of us. So Jesus said, verse 4, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? They'd already asked him that question. 
but they must not have asked in this particular moment. And he says, but because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. He can see it on their faces. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It's to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Now, Jesus has mentioned the Holy Spirit several times to them. In fact, even on their walk in John 14, in verse 15, it says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you, and he will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. A little later, he said, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to you remembrance all I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. And then in verse, chapter 15, he said, when the, Holy Spirit, when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. I mean, this is astounding. Jesus is giving the disciples a promise that he's going to give them the greatest gift in the world. And they have the same limited focus we often choose. What? You're going to change something? I hate change. Oh, my goodness, Jesus, we've been with you. We know you. We love you. And you're leaving? Are my life's going to change? What's going to happen to us? And the disciples aren't thinking about Jesus. They're not thinking about his mission. They're not thinking about what he came uh, to this world to accomplish or his impending trial or his abuse or his suffering or his anguish or his death. He's about to be arrested and nailed to the cross and die for the sin of the world. And he needs their prayers and their support now more than ever. He's heavy-hearted, maybe even depressed. And he needs their encouragement because there is no other way for man to get right with God for the sin of the world to be atoned for. Nothing else would satisfy God in heaven. So Jesus is going to die. And they're only thinking about their own safety, their own interests, their own future, their own comfort. What's going to happen to us? And they're afraid. And they're anxious. And they knew that what life had been and they were secure in the presence of Jesus. But now he's saying, life as we know it is over. We're starting a new chapter. It's going to be new and strange and wonderful and unfamiliar. And it's uncomfortable and it's frightening to the disciples and what to do. Well, fortunately, most have made it out of that crisis alive and did the right thing. They remembered what Jesus had told them, and they obeyed him. They listened, they trusted, and they obeyed. And he told them to remain faithful and to pray and to listen to God for direction, and he would send them his Holy Spirit who would live inside them. Now, we know more of the story. We know that later that night, Jesus was arrested, and all the disciples deserted him and scattered like, like bugs do when you turn over a rock, and suddenly what's been in the dark is now exposed to the light. And just like Jesus said, Judas betrayed him, and Peter denied him, and the rooster crowed early in the morning, and Peter went out and wept bitterly, and Judas was remorseful, and he went and threw the silver back in the temple and went out and hung himself. And Jesus was nailed to the cross between two criminals, and the Jews mocked him all the way to his death. But the price for sin was paid. God had opened a way. The, the bill was paid. The curtain was torn from the top to the bottom. Jesus was placed in the grave, but the next Sunday morning he was alive again. Suddenly he his, couldn't find his body, and then he would show up here and here and there and there. He's alive. The disciples are astonished. They're frightened for new reasons. 
Because the Jewish leaders have refused to believe and have tried to keep it under wraps. They don't want people to know the truth, and they persecuted anybody who spoke of Jesus. And Jesus just kept showing up different places among the believers for the next 40 days. And then he gathered them all together, and he told them to go back to Jerusalem and to pray until they receive power from on high, which they didn't know that was another way to refer to the Holy Spirit. And then Jesus disappeared. They did what he said and went back to Jerusalem and began to pray, began to pray. And eight days later, they're all praying in Jerusalem, and suddenly the Holy Spirit is unleashed on all of them. You can read it in Acts chapter 2. And they're not afraid anymore. They spoke boldly. They prayed fervently. They gave generously. They loved. They laughed. They gathered in their homes. They sang. They praised God. They shared meals together. They spread the good news of Jesus all over the world. And it's been growing since then till now. And the church of Jesus Christ is alive in this world. 2,000 years later, and God's Holy Spirit is still doing the work of Jesus and doing what Jesus promised. Look what Jesus said the Holy Spirit would do. Verse 8, when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you'll see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. What will the Holy Spirit do in our lives? He will be in you. He will be in you, Jesus said. This is radical. I mean, the Holy Spirit will live in you. Now, when I th we think of God, we think of, of the Bible and history, you kind of think of God the Father as the primary focus of God in the Old Testament. And he promises that his son is coming or a Messiah is coming and Jesus, his son, comes and Jesus is the primary focus of the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Don, John. And then the Holy Spirit shows up in the book of Acts and really the whole rest is kind of about God, the Holy Spirit. But you might end up thinking that he was kind of a late addition. He was an add-on to the story. But the Holy Spirit is God. He was never created. He's every much God as God the Father or God the Son. In fact, he's part of the story from the very beginning. If you go back to the first book of the Bible, in the first chapter, in the second verse, it says, the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And then you look at Exodus, the next book, and by now Moses has taken the children of Israel out of the slavery in Egypt into the promise, and they're out in the wilderness headed toward the promised land, and they're trying to build a tabernacle so they can have a house for God among the people. And God tells Moses, who needs craftsmen to work on the tabernacle, he says about one particular person, I have filled him with the Spirit of God with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and craftsmanship to devise artistic designs to work in gold and silver and bronze and all of these crafts and, 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 and craftsman abilities and all these artistic designs and uh, artistic abilities are given by God's Spirit so that they could be used to draw people into God's presence. A little later in the book of Numbers, it says, so the Lord said to Moses, take Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the spirit, and lay your hands on him. Make him stand before Eliezer, the priest, and all the congregation, and you shall commission him in their sight. God had said, Moses, Joshua is going to be your successor. Put your hands on him. He's a man who's filled with God's spirit. 
And then in Judges 34, it's talking about one of the judges, Gideon, who's afraid, and the Midianites are, are, are uh, harassing the Israelites, and so he's, he's hiding to thresh his grain. And the Lord shows up to him and says, you're my man, and I'm going to use you. And Gideon doesn't want that. But then it says, the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon, clothed him. And he sounded the trumpet, and the Abzerites were called out to follow him. That's a phrase that the Spirit of God clothed somebody is used more than once in the Bible. And then in 1 Samuel, the prophet Samuel is told to go to the house of Jesse to anoint a new uh, king from one of Jesse's sons. And they look at the first and the second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, and seventh, none. And then they find the eighth one. He's out tending the sheep. And the Lord says, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed David in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. That phrase is used several times as well for the spirit of just rushing onto people. David went on to become the greatest king of Israel, but he made his share of mistakes. And at one point when some of those were pointed out to him and his heart is repentant, he prayed in Psalm 51, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. This is the first place in the Bible that the phrase Holy Spirit is put together in one phrase. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. So you see in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit was alive. He was present. He was active in this world, not in the same way as in our lives, but he lived in the temple or the tabernacle and he came upon you or he clothed you or he rushed upon you, but not in you. Then came Jesus. And after Jesus' crucifixion and God moved out of the temple, the curtains ripped from top to bottom, God's Spirit moved into people's hearts who believed in Him. So we're the containers. Now, it doesn't really matter what a container is like if you have a, something precious inside. It's not the container that matters, fortunately. It's what it inside that counts. So you might have a clear liquid, and it could be water or lighter fluid or vodka or something else, and you don't know the difference until you read the label. But it's what it's inside that makes the difference. And Jesus had promised, I will ask the Father, and you, he will give you another counselor to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him or knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you, and he will be in you. God's Spirit lives inside, and God's Spirit speaks to us from the inside. So sometimes the world goes, how did you know that? I haven't seen him, and you don't have to see him. He's in you. The Holy Spirit comes into your life the moment you invited Jesus to be your Savior. At the point that you said, I need a Savior, and I believe Jesus is the only Savior available, and you choose to follow him yourself, that moment the Holy Spirit comes in to be your Savior, into your heart, into your life, and he will be with you forever. It's the most important relationship in your life. He's going to be with you. He will be in you. He'll be with you forever. And the result is you're never alone. Have you ever noticed how you just, even if you're at home alone or then with somebody's there, how different that is if somebody's in the house with you? That you do different things. You talk about different things. You, you respond different ways. And the Holy Spirit is alive inside of us. You can't see him, but he's with you. He's, he's closer than your next breath. You're never alone if you have God's Spirit in you. And we all need companionship. And there are moments of loneliness, but you'll never be alone again. Now, one of my proofreaders said, don't tell a blonde joke in the middle of church to make a point. So this is not a blonde joke. It's just about a woman who chose her hair color. And 
she, can, she had a job and she would go to work and she had a headset on all the time and she just worked uh, diligently and positively and she was successful in her work and she just always had a headset on and one day she just slumped over dead at her desk and they went to check and they took her for an autopsy and the first thing they checked was the headset. They found out the battery had died. So they changed the battery and somebody tested to see what, what was it that she was listening to that made her such a success. And the, when the, as soon as they put in new batteries, it said... Breathe in, breathe out, breathe in, breathe out, breathe in, breathe out. Say, where are you going with this? You and I could breathe out. I'm forgiven from my sin. Lord, take my sin from me because of Jesus. Breathe in. Holy Spirit, fill me with yourself. Breathe out. God, thank you for taking my sin away. Breathe in. Fill me, Lord, fill me with your Holy Spirit. So every breath you take this week, you can remember. Breathe in. Lord, fill me with your Holy Spirit. Thank you for forgiving me from my sin. Holy Spirit, be at work in my heart and in my life. Fill me up. See, the Bible says the Holy Spirit will convict the world. He comes, he will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. Sin because they don't believe in me, Jesus said. Righteousness because I go to the Father and you'll see me no more concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Jesus, when he comes, he will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Convict is to bring to light or to reprove or to cross-examine. That's what the Holy Spirit does in our hearts. He doesn't let go. But you and I have had a sin problem. It's a big problem because we can't measure up to God's standard of perfection. Sin is a hole in our heart. And the Holy Spirit is there to say, something's wrong. Get right with God. Listen to me. Something's wrong. Get right with God. Jesus is righteousness. He's unique. He's powerful. And the Holy Spirit is here to remind us he's our Savior. He also reminds us of judgment. This world is headed for a disaster. Most people in this world have some version of that thought in their mind. We're headed for disaster. We're not going the right direction. We need some mid-course corrections. In fact, right now we have politicians of several parties explaining that to us. And the Holy Spirit is there to convict. His job is to convict. Get right with God. You can't solve the problems of the whole world. You can solve the ones in your heart. Get right with God. It's His job to convict. Ours is to witness to tell the story of what God has done. Now, it doesn't work for us to try to convict people of their sin. We simply witness and let the Holy Spirit do His work. This week, I ran into a family in a parking lot, and they were in their car. Fortunately, they didn't hit me, but they pulled up. They rolled down their windows. They said hello, the husband and wife in the front. They said, you'll have to meet our new international student. So I stuck my head in and said hello. I'm not, I mean, I shook his hand. I'm not sure he even spoke any English. And then the wife, who's kind of over-enthusiastic sometimes about telling people about Jesus and seeing people become believers, said, you'll need to tell him about Jesus. Make him invite Jesus into his heart. Well... I could tell him about Jesus. A less pressured situation would be more advantageous. And I can pray for him. And I can tell him what Jesus has done in my life. But it, my job is not to convict him. That's the job of the Holy Spirit, to convict him of his sin and of his need for Jesus. Our job, my job, is simply to be a witness. Here's what God has done for me. And here's what I know to be true based on my life and based on God's word. So this week, I'm encouraging you to depend on the power of God's Holy Spirit by praying specifically for somebody who's not a believer. Write some of their names down on your program. People you know and love and care about, pray, God, this person needs you in their heart. Holy Spirit, please do your work and convict them and use me if you need to.
To say, I'm, I'm, I'm going to make a list. I'm going to be praying for people. I'm going to increase my own level of concern that there are people who are not going to make it. They're headed for disaster without Jesus. They need our Savior. And then even commit yourself, this week I'm going to talk to somebody about Jesus. Jesus, bring somebody across my path. Cause me to have a conversation where I have a chance to witness for you. You know what the Holy Spirit does in our lives? He guides the believer. He guides the believer. You look in the book of Acts, you can see how he was doing things in big dramatic ways. You look in all the letters that come after that because the church went from this little scared group to a world faith in 30 years and it's all recorded in the book of Acts and then the letters that come after that are to people or or churches, situations where there were problems as the church grew and and God's spirit spoke through those and gives us guidance as well. And then the book of Revelation that talks about Jesus as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And he's not only given us direction for living, he supplies us with a personal guide. A personal guide. Look what Jesus said, verse 12. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. He's looking at the disciples. They must have glossed over. They look like, you know, sheep standing on the railroad tracks, wondering what's coming our way. And then he, but he, Jesus has this to say, so he just keeps going. He says, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority. Whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you as all that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Now, if you went out in the woods and got lost what would you do? Well, go downhill. Follow a stream. It'll, it'll run across a road somewhere, okay? But if, wouldn't it be better if you had a map and a compass? Well, we have a map and compass. God gives us guide. But wouldn't it even be better if you had a personal guide? I mean, think about it. If you had a personal guide out in the woods, you wouldn't get lost as long as you kept them in view. Just keep that guide in view. Follow the guide. Do what the guide says. Obey what the guide tells you. The guide is always going to tell you the truth. At least our guide, the Holy Spirit, does. Our guide is never going to contradict the the guidance that we've been given in the map. And he's going to guide us toward hope. He's going to guide us towards Jesus, King of kings and Lord of lords. You know, I'm sure many of us have taken time to wish, I wish I could have just been with Jesus and seen him bodily and been one of the 12 disciples and walked with him and, and, and been with him. Well, Jesus said we have something even better. We have his Holy Spirit alive in our hearts, and his job is to reveal and to glorify our Savior, Jesus Christ. He said the Spirit will guide you into all truth, and he will tell you the words of Jesus of what is to come, and he will bring glory to Jesus. Have you ever heard the Holy Spirit speak audibly to you? I have not. Most people have not. But there are those times where you're just given a thought or an idea or a direction. Maybe you're reading God's Word. Maybe you've prayed as you were going to sleep. God, I have this problem. I don't know how to solve it. You wake up in the morning and you have an an answer. Or you just some little voice that speaks inside of your heart, inside of your head. Maybe you're not even doing something spiritual and all of a sudden this thought comes through and you go, that clearly came from God. Be listening for His voice. He's alive inside of you, and he's comforting us, convicting us, convincing us, and guiding us. Now, why do we need comforting and convicting and convincing? Because we are living as believers in an unbelieving world, which means we're out of step. We're swimming upstream. We're thought of as odd, as objects for ridicule or rejection or worse, and yet we still have a job to do for Jesus, and someday we will give him an account. 
Do you want to see, hear Jesus on the day you get to heaven standing at the gate? Do you want him to say, well, welcome, come on in. Oh, you of little faith. That's not a compliment. If you, go, if you go reading that where he's saying that to the disciples, it's, you slow learners, come on, I've, we've been over and over and over this. Come on, you should have it by now. Or at that moment at the, at the pearly gates, you don't want to have to say, well, Lord, I heard what you wanted me to do, but it was so audacious. It was so overwhelming. It was so big, and we were afraid. The disciples tried that several times, didn't we? We didn't do what you told us to do because we were afraid. It didn't go well. What you want to hear Jesus say is, well done, welcome home, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. So we read his word, we listen to his voice, and then we obey without letting our feelings get in the way, without drama, without complaining. Just obey out of love for Jesus. Our prayer could be, thank you, Lord, for sending the Holy Spirit in our lives. Fill us up with yourself. Empower our witness. Be our personal guide. Thank you. Forgive us for those times that we come up short and we depend on ourselves. May we represent you well in this world and finish your work and give us the courage that we need when we are called on to suffer for your sake. Jesus gave the Holy Spirit as a gift. Don't get trapped looking at the crib. The gift is the Spirit. It's the Savior. He points us to Jesus. Shall we pray? God, thank you for sending the Holy Spirit in our lives. Fill us up with yourself. May we hear your voice. Empower our witness. Be our personal guide. Thank you. Forgive us for all those times that we depend on ourselves. May we represent you and do it well. And may we finish your work. Give us courage to endure and to suffer for your sake. Amen.